Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Nice! Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, insights from the real-life NASA scientist behind Netflix's new killer comet movie, Don't Look Up. Plus, reindeers are the only mammals whose eyes change color with the seasons. And their noses kind of do, too. The science behind that and the history of the most famous red-nosed reindeer of all. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So Netflix's latest original movie, Don't Look Up, premiered in theaters today, and it'll start streaming on the 24th. The doomsday comedy stars Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio as astronomers who discover a comet twice the size of the one that destroyed the dinosaurs that is on a direct and fast approach towards Earth. But when they try to warn people, namely the government, no one believes them. Also, this movie somehow got, like, every famous person ever in it. It also includes Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Rob Morgan, Ariana Grande, Timothy Chalamet, Kid Cudi, Tyler Perry, Matthew Perry, Kate Blanchett, Chris Evans, Sumesh Patel, Ron Perlman, and more. I mean, maybe the world really is ending and they all just wanted to get together for one last hurrah. But what's really piqued my interest in the movie is that a lot of the coverage today isn't interviewing any of those Hollywood stars, but rather speaking to Dr. Amy Mainzer, the NASA astronomer who served as the science advisor on the film. Per NASA, Mainzer is one of the world's leading scientists in asteroid detection and planetary defense. She's overseen the largest space-based asteroid hunting project in history, which included discovering Neowise, the brightest comet seen in the Northern Hemisphere in over two decades. Decades. Currently, when she's not helping Leo DiCaprio understand asteroids, Manzer is working to find invasive species that fuel wildfires using remote sensing technology. So basically, she's a badass. Now, with the whole planet-killing comet plot, Don't Look Up may remind people vaguely of the 1998 Michael Bay film Armageddon, which was recently re-upped in the public consciousness when NASA launched a spacecraft to nudge an asteroid as part of their DART mission to test if that would be an effective strategy for knocking any future planet killers off their course towards Earth. Mainzer says that will hopefully be a great strategy, when the object is small enough and you have enough time. Time is key, and exactly what they don't have in the movie. Fortunately, in real life, astronomers like Mainzer are ever at work looking for comets that could be coming our way, so that we have years or ideally decades to prepare for any that could come too close. What happens in the movie, when there are just six months before a comet actually hits the Earth, is extremely unlikely to ever happen in our lifetimes, Mainzer tells The Verge, so that's a relief. But a fast-moving comet that comes very close to Earth and which scientists don't discover until a few months before it makes its closest approach to the Sun, that, Mainzer told Inverse, is entirely possible, and has happened before, namely with the Neowise comet that Mainzer helped discover. Of course, hitting the Earth is much less likely. 
That's where you'll need to suspend your disbelief for the film right at the start, with its whole premise. But all of the science behind that is legit. Mainzer says that she designed the comet for the movie, quote, based on a number of other comets that have similar orbital characteristics and come from the extreme outer part of our solar system, end quote. But as trailers indicate, what makes this movie so different from other doomsday movies like Independence Day and so relevant to the moment is that the scientists have to spend an enormous amount of time and effort convincing the public and even the government that what they're saying is true. And while director Adam McKay intended the killer comet to be a metaphor about the climate emergency, and it certainly seems to effectively achieve that, Inverse notes that it unintentionally became a pertinent mirror of the pandemic. Quote, Don't Look Up highlights difficulties facing public health officials who communicate changing information to a skeptical public misled by the politicization of science and media echo chambers, end quote. Or as the New York Times puts it, quote, The film is less about asteroids than about the tendency of humans to dismiss bad news from science and to embrace misinformation, end quote. It is, in many ways, a movie about the challenges of science communication, which makes it even better that the science advisor of the movie is doing the press rounds almost as much as the lead actors of the film. Mainzer said to Space.com, quote, I hope people realize that this isn't really just a disaster movie, but it's really more of a commentary on how we react when we hear news that we don't like or don't want to know. End quote. And part of that is the struggle to translate scientific language to the public. Mainzer gave a great example to Inverse, quote, Uncertainty is a word that has a very specific definition mathematically in science, and we use it to quantify exactly how well we made a particular measurement. But if I say that something is uncertain, usually that's interpreted as meaning I don't know in the eyes of the public. End quote. And it's not just the language used. There's also the emotion and the obligation. Mainzer says she spent a lot of time on Zoom and FaceTime with DiCaprio in particular, talking about what a scientist does when faced with bad news that needs to be shared with the world. Mainzer told The Verge, quote, You'll see in the movie there's sort of a debate about the role of activism. If you're a scientist and you have news to bring to everybody that's not good, what do you do? Do you try to say it in a way that's polite? Do you try to protest in the streets? Do you try to work with people who are in power even if you profoundly disagree with them? What do you do? So we really worked on how do we present that in a way that is believable and helps to humanize the characters, end quote. And while the lack of belief in what scientists are saying feels all too real, Mainzer also explained to Space.com that in real life, discoveries like comets come with way more protocol and transparency. Quote, Observations of asteroids and comets are immediately relayed to the Minor Planet Center, an official body of the International Astronomical Union. The center uses automated software to connect the dots and see if something is a potential new discovery, she said. And new entrants are posted to the internet publicly in no more than a few hours both at MPC and at the JPL website, end quote. So hopefully there would be a lot more for the government and reporters to look at and trust were anything even remotely similar to this to happen one day. Though it did almost happen once before, kind of. Dennis Overby today recounted in the New York Times how back in 1998, as a new deputy science editor for the Times, he had approved the front-page publication of a story about a newly discovered mile-wide asteroid that was going to pass within 30,000 miles of Earth in the year 2028 and had, quote, a small but real chance of hitting our planet, end quote. 
The asteroid was discovered by Brian Marsden, then director of the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams, a legit astronomer working with the aforementioned Minor Planet Center in the IAU. But by the next day, after the story had been published in the Times, Marsden had recalculated and realized that the asteroid would actually miss us by 600,000 miles. It turned into a media fiasco, with tabloids and colleagues calling Dr. Marsden chicken little and worse. Overby shared a side-by-side -side of his approved Times front-page story from that day, beside a New York Post cover from the next day debunking the asteroid news. Funnily enough, that March 13, 1998 New York Post cover also has another headline at the top about Leonardo DiCaprio's latest film, The Man in the Iron Mask and How It Totally Bombed. Will this latest DiCaprio movie suffer the same fate? Mainzer doesn't think so. Asked how she thinks the actors did portraying realistic scientists and the gravity of the situation even during comedic scenes, Mainzer told The Verge that the actors are a bunch of nerds. Though she meant it as a compliment, basically she found them all to be genuinely interested in the science and passionate about portraying scientists as full humans, not as the butts of the joke or as evil villains. And Mainzer hopes that this film will help us remember the full humanity in each of us. A lot to ask of a comedy, perhaps, but she says that comedies are what help her cope with all of the potentially existential crisis-inducing facts of her work life. Quoting once more from The Verge, I think the role of the arts is really important. You know, science teaches us about the nature of the world around us, both good and bad, but the arts are really what allow us to kind of process what we're learning about that, bring it to other people, and help bring it home to them. And then it helps us cope, not just as scientists, but as people. End quote. North of the Arctic Circle in Norway, over the summer, the sun never completely sets, and in the winter, the sun never completely rises. And for one species in particular, this polar extreme creates a very unique characteristic. Arctic reindeer, it turns out, have golden yellow eyes in the summer and deep blue eyes in the winter. Like the same individual reindeer's eyes will change color with the seasons. At the behest of colleagues from Norway, neuroscientist Glenn Jeffrey has been leading research on this strange phenomenon since the early 2000s. Quoting National Geographic, The bit that actually changes color is the tapetum lucidum, or cat's eye, a mirrored layer that sits behind the retina. It helps animals to see in dim conditions by reflecting any light that passes through the retina back onto it, allowing its light-detecting cells a second chance to intercept the stray photons. The tapetum is the reason why mammal eyes often glow yellow if you photograph them at night. You're seeing the camera's flash reflecting back at you. Most mammals have a golden tapetum. And so do the reindeer in the summer, end quote. But the reason reindeer's eyes turn blue in the winter is because spending months in the near total darkness of the Arctic winters causes their eyes to be constantly dilated, and that dilation causes pressure that swells up the eyeballs. Quoting again, these events also change the tapetum. This layer is mostly made up of collagen, a protein whose long fibers are arranged in orderly rows. As the pressure inside the eye builds up, the fluid between the collagen fibers gets squeezed out, and they become more tightly packed. The spacing of these fibers affects the type of light they reflect. With the usual gaps between them, they reflect yellow wavelengths. When squeezed together, they reflect blue wavelengths." 
end quote. Jeffrey and his team also think this makes the reindeer's eyes more sensitive, which adds up with what every optometrist has ever told me about my blue eyes, that light-colored eyes are more sensitive, so I need to be more careful about wearing sunglasses, etc. Reindeer's blue winter eyes, though, are apparently 1,000 times more sensitive to light than their golden summer eyes. So, like, dang, maybe they need to pull a Cory Hart and start wearing their sunglasses at night. The scientists disagree if the color change of the reindeer's eyes is actually what's causing the increase in sensitivity, though, so the research is ongoing. And as they've been trying to work it out, Jeffrey's team was hit by another curveball. They found reindeers who had been exposed to a bit of faraway streetlights in the winter, leading to only partially dilated eyes, and their tapetums therefore became not blue, but green. Quote, their pupils partly dilated during the winter, the pressure in their eyes increased a little, their collagen fibers became slightly squeezed together, and their tapetums stopped halfway along their yellow to blue transformation, et voila, green tapetum, end quote. And if all of this talk of color-changing reindeer is reminding you of a certain flying outcast, here's another weird fact. Some real-life reindeers do actually have red noses. They don't light up like a light bulb, but rather appear as some slight coloration around their snouts. A study published in the medical journal BMJ in 2012 explained that the redness occurred due to extremely densely packed blood vessels in the nose that supply blood and regulate the reindeer's body temperature in the harsh winter environment. As one part of the study, the researchers put reindeers on treadmills, and quoting Smithsonian Magazine, used infrared imaging to measure what parts of their bodies shed the most heat after exercise. The nose, along with the hind legs, reached temperatures as high as 75 degrees Fahrenheit, relatively hot for a reindeer, indicating that one of the main functions of all this blood flow is to help regulate temperature, bringing large volumes of blood close to the surface when the animals are overheated so its heat can radiate out into the air. End quote. So not only was Rudolph able to guide the sleigh, he was also probably maintaining a more steady body temperature while he did so. So take that, all of you other reindeer. Next time you might want to let him join in your reindeer games. And by the way, did you know that the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer song, sometimes claimed to be the second best-selling Christmas record of all time, just behind Irving Berlin's White Christmas, and Rudolph as a concept himself is not nearly so old as we often think. The song was adapted from a poem that was written as promotional material for a department store in 1939. Yeah, so not some long-standing folklore or anything, just a guy named Robert May who came up with the story in 1939 as just another task for Montgomery Ward. They sent the poem out with illustrations by Denver Gillen as a free booklet for Christmas that year. But it became so popular that seven years later, they sent out twice as many copies. And then they actually gave the rights to its creator, Robert May, who published the story outright. And then his brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, wrote a song based on it, the same song we're so familiar with now. Even though they couldn't get their first choice of Bing Crosby to perform it, the version they did get with Gene Autry sold two million copies in its first run in 1949. Oh, and Johnny Marks, by the way, after adapting Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, also went on to write Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Silver and Gold, Run Rudolph Run, A Holly Jolly Christmas, and all of the music for the 1964 Rankin-based claymation adaptation of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I don't know if May realized just how prophetic he would be in 1939 when he wrote the final lines of the song saying that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer would go down in history. 
That little promotional booklet for Montgomery Ward certainly changed the trajectory of his life and of Johnny Marx's, and really a big chunk of modern-day Christmas in America. All right, well, that is it from me for this week. As always, the show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.